Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Today we get to hear from Ian Jacobson, the president of Eco Products, which is perhaps the largest distributor globally of compostable food service products. Eco Products has grown over 10x with Ian at the helm and is now a part of Novalex, an even larger packaging entity. We dive into various details about the building of this company and the plans ahead. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, hello. I'm so happy today to have my friend Ian Jacobson join me for this conversation. Ian and I met uh, a while back uh, at a Molded Fibers conference and uh, we got talking and I've been trying to find ways to work with him ever since. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for joining in. You are such an inspiration and I know Eco Products, the company you lead, is doing such great things in the sustainable packaging space. So I'm so excited to have you over and so excited to have this conversation. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I'm going to start with Ian, the person. If you can think about instances in your childhood that made you aware about packaging and what got you, really got you on this track. In terms of what brought me to Eco Products, it's, uh, or even before that, right? When we think back to my earliest exposure to waste and to packaging, a memory that struck me recently was I grew up in my early early years on a farm uh, outside of New York. And one of my early memories was my my job was to burn the trash, right? Anything that we couldn't feed to farm animals or you know, use for redemption value for cans and bottles and that sort of thing in the state of New York, um, we would burn. And we had a can out back and I'd have to carry it back there. And I remember early memories of, uh, of learning some things burn different colors than others. And <laughs> there are certain things you lit on fire that you probably shouldn't breathe. Um, and again, as, as a kid, watching that waste stream evolve in ways that were imperceptible at the time. And I hadn't thought about it for years until recently, how that you know, sort of early experiences like that can color uh, your experience of, of what evolves, of what makes it to the curb. Right. In those days, plastic certainly didn't play the role it does today. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to fast forward. And of course, uh, you go ahead and become an economics major and do a lot of work around investment. And then what pulled you into packaging? Well, it's one of the things that, again, your, your path is never clear to you as you're on it. Uh, but with the benefit of hindsight, you can see certain things that have guided away. So uh, my experience when I began to consider myself an environmentalist was in high school. Uh, we had moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. I was in a competitive snowboard program. I was very much an action sports athlete, and that was what I wanted to do in life wound up moving to uh, the Pacific Northwest actually to work for Sim Snowboards, which um, through a variety, uh, series of things didn't work out that led me into finance, which was a complete left turn. But initially working for an investment bank, going to business school, and then getting into private equity after that, my, my focus was on growing consumer 
driven businesses, what we call growth equity investments in consumer driven businesses. And the focuses I had at the firm were action sports, <laughs> not surprisingly, and what we consider the environmental category. And that would typically be anything you'd find for sale in a Whole Foods at that point in time. Uh, anything green building products related. This was in the early 2000s where a lot of this focus was kind of 04, 05. And had a lot of interesting exposure to a lot of really fascinating growth brands and always consumer driven. What we looked for were trends that become shifts in the way that consumers are leading the economy. And clearly green building products was one of those. And along the way came across this company in Boulder, Colorado called Eco Products and was fascinated. Uh, the early marketing claims were the fact that the cup had been made from corn and wasn't this novel. And truly it was. And again, the growth of the company was phenomenal. It was an Inc. 500 company year after year, and that becomes hard to do when the, the revenue numbers get larger. I was led an investment team that was evaluating this business uh, as it was up for a recapitalization. And this was in the 08, 09 timeframe when the financial markets were coming unhinged. And unfortunately, this was a, uh, an investment that my investment committee at the 12th hour said we're not comfortable with the risk profile. It's competing against these, these massive uh, incumbent packaging companies and, and we're concerned about the ability of this company to grow and scale. And that was a very difficult message for me to deliver to the CEO at the time. And he knew I was passionate about the business. And it was one of these things where we had to part. But over time, I, I stayed in contact. I knew there was an open slot for the CFO role. And over a series of conversations, I decided to just follow my beliefs. Because, uh, again, this was central to who I was. And again, the, through a diligence process, through any investment cycle, you're looking for flaws. You're looking for things that are underperforming in the business that could become systemic risks to the business model. And every business has risks. This was a process by which I was finding things that could be fixed that my uh, investment committee just wasn't comfortable with the broader risk, just really due to the fact that we were competing with multi-billion dollar competitors. So fast forward to today, I, I took that role as CFO and in a just... <laughs> <laughs> I can continue with the story, but uh, the, the eco product story from there became pretty fearsome, right? The, that CEO left within a month. One of those larger competitors that we were concerned about came after the business very aggressively, and it was tough times. But what really set eco products apart was the focus on not just the attribute of the cup, that it was made from corn or that it was compostable, but that it could be used as part of a system to keep food waste out of landfills. And settling on that focus became a critical differentiator for Eco Products as a brand, because it meant that it was not about the cup. It was about how the cup was used and about how when done in a series, done with operators that were committed to making changes, uh, with willing composters that were willing to take a stream and, uh, of new material that they weren't familiar with, that we could actually achieve something that was much more than just, can I buy a cup made of corn? Can I buy a molded fiber container made of bagasse? It was to say, how can we capture this front of house stream in a way that will keep food waste out of the landfill? And that was something that we really just built into the brand early on. And it became the key differentiator. That, and, I, and I think it is an approach to innovation and it's an approach to the product category that continues to lead us, guide us today. 
as you know, we, we view Ecoproducts as a mission-driven brand, and it is very much around a zero-waste future and how we use packaging as a, as a tool to keep food waste out of the landfill. And I think that focus has, has really set the business apart. I know Ecoproducts was an early player in this field of food services, and in particular, compostable and more sustainable products. I would love for you to throw some light on the eco products journey, how it sure. started in 1990 and how it evolved and, you know. I would be happy to share. So the journey began in 1990 and it was a father-son box truck distribution business. And eco products at its origin, it, it, it's interesting to choose to name the business eco products gave it a range of things that it could do. And at the time, they did anything that they could distribute, right? It was everything from recycled office paper to low VOC paints. And really, that was the bulk of the business. Uh, Steve Savage, consummate entrepreneur, right? Just looking for new things to try and, again, was an early adopter of e-commerce. And so one of the great claims to fame for eco-products is that it, in many respects, predated Google from its approach to the Internet. And so with that, what we call it a lot of juice, right, in terms of how search engines work. And with a name like Ecoproducts and an early approach to selling everything from organic teas to low VOC paints, uh, quickly got a lot of eyeballs. Now, that approach, and as you can imagine, during the whole run-up in the housing boom in the early 2000s, the green building side of the business was what Ecoproducts was. It was a distribution business that was, it was doing phenomenal things, right, in terms of, of uh, green building products to both institutional and residential customers throughout the front range. Uh, but that, that online business was impactful. And a gentleman here named Luke Vernon uh, joined Steve Savage and was one of the first to really start to look at other products in food service. And what's interesting is that the business began as a reseller of early, like I said, corn cups that were manufactured by other companies that we continue to compete with today. The difference was that we were selling them online. And the story goes, there was a category manager in Salt Lake City for a major food service distributor whose customer said, hey, I want a corn cup. Went to the internet, searched corn cup and found eco products. And as a result of that, we were in distribution. We were suddenly providing this bundle of goods to a food service distributor, and then one goes to the next very quickly, and that's where the growth became exponential. Um, shortly after that, some of the partners we were sourcing from here in North America decided that they didn't want to compete with us at distribution, and we went looking for our products abroad. And that is a discipline that continues to this day. And I think it's one of the challenges that we see in food service packaging is that to do new things, innovation requires investment. And to the degree that you have confidence that you can operate these new things at scale, that requires a lot of commitment, a lot of guts. And it lends itself to the import model where we can take smaller tools, smaller investments, get that cost down, because the curse of food service packaging is it wants to be as close to free as possible. And typically new things will require speculation, and it's hard to do them as cheaply as a lot of these uh, incumbent products. That lends itself to the outsource model. And again, when we talk about transparency, which I'm sure we get to later, we don't, we don't hide from that. You know, Some of the most, I would say, the leading environmental 
brands in the world, names like Patagonia and others, are proud of the fact that they run import models as well. It comes down to the decisions you make in terms of what you choose to focus your efforts on and how you choose to use them that matters. So the early days, it was an issue, right? You guys are importers. Well, yes, but many, many of the brands that we know and love are importers. It really comes down to the design choices we make, how we select those materials and how they're used that matters. And you, you see that reflected in our sustainability report. So back to the journey, it's really that 2007 timeframe where those initial distributor relationships began to take off. And one of the critical pieces of our success is the fact that we have an open approach to the category. The concept has always been, how can we find a better solution to a status quo package? And that doesn't require us to only think about cups, right? Cups are truncated cones, right? There's not a lot of innovation in terms of a cup. But as we extend into trays, platters, bowls, to-go containers, there's an incredible amount of, of diversity in terms of design choices and aesthetic as well as performance. All of these things are trade-offs and substrate. And because of our approach, we were a one-stop shop for a lot of these distributors. What we call the bundle was everything from cutlery to cups, lids, straws, stirs, hot cup, cold cup, plates. You name it, we were the one-stop shop. So the strength of that bundle, the consistency of the philosophy around trying to make the products that we were making better, but not just better to our own aesthetic choices, better to what we would view to be a third-party certification, post-consumer cycle content or BPI certified compostable, right? These were third-party validations that we were looking for and that we were prepared to back up. So that conversation quickly evolved to say, okay, from the distributor's perspective, I've got a source that's a one-stop shop, but now I also have a partner, a partner who can handle hard questions, right? When the student at the, at the university wants to take issue with why we chose a post-consumer cycled fork versus a, you know, one made from renewable resources, they have a number to call. They have a partner in the field that can explain the trade-offs, explain why we landed there and, and why we think these are, are, are valid improvements to the status quo. So again, that strength of that bundle mattered. From there, it became, the growth became exponential. Uh, but along the way, it became very clear very early that just providing the products was not enough, right? What mattered was these zero-waste environments. And so the, the 2010 Vancouver Olympics was an important milestone for eco-products. It was the first widely advertised zero-waste event where they conscientiously made sure that everything that was brought into that Olympic village was compostable. And as an extension, almost everything brought into the village at the time was eco-products. So it was a great branding experience and a great validation of the category that then proceeded to other uh, stadium scale opportunities. If you think about the Seattle Mariners Stadium, the CU uh, Boulder Folsom Field here, just proving out the concept at scale uh, was critically important to us. And as we led with those stories, we were able to provide additional proof points at leading universities, corporate campuses, and really started to develop strong alignments with a lot of the contract concessionaires that will control those venues to the point where today we are the largest in the category. We are among the largest. You know, different categories will have different leaders, but from a bundle perspective, from the approach to the, the, the commitment to zero waste, I can't name you another brand that's going to have a reach as broad as ours.
especially with the addition of the Vegware team under the Eco Products division of Novalex, where we now have zero waste success stories that extend from Europe to Australia to all parts of the world, Canada and U.S. in particular. So it's been a phenomenal growth story and remains that way today. But really, the leadership we're most proud of is, is leading in these zero waste success stories. It, it's not about the total number of packages sold. It's about the total number of packages diverted from the landfill. That's truly, truly inspiring. This is interesting for me to know that, you know, the Savages were actually doing a variety of products. So when did that cusp or transition take place where somebody in the company decides that we're going to focus on this? And does the other side of the business still continue? Yeah, it was never so much a strategic decision because it became obvious very quickly that the size and scale of the business were growing. And frankly, quickly we had become a brand. We were more than just a distributor. We were a brand. And that brand was in food service packaging. It was you know, harder to make that claim when you're reselling you know, low VOC paints. That said, there were other examples inside of eco-products at the time that did successfully create brands. And uh, some of those now, Steve Savage continues to operate as 1908 brands. So you'll see Boulder Clean, which is an environmentally preferable cleaning solution. Um, a lot of the green building stuff went away just with the, as you'd imagine, with the collapse of the housing market uh, in that 0809 timeframe. And again, the focus on eco-products just became clear as a result of the growth and the strength of the brand. From a growth perspective, again, we're, we're limited in terms of what we can share uh, financially. I'll tell you that we now will regularly sell more in a month than we did in the year that I joined. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. I want to talk about there's very rare occurrences when there is a COO and a CFO together. So, so in, yeah, a package deal. So how did they manage to convince you to be this package deal, you know, where you're heading the operations and you're heading the finance? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's interesting. A lot of that is just the evolution of the company at the time. And what's one of the remarkable things around eco-products is that we're now, since I've been with the company, we're on our sixth ownership group. You know, the, the Savages were financed here locally by a group called Greenmont Capital in Boulder. Uh, ultimately, was uh, then sold to WNA, which was led by Olympus Partners. And that was the point where I transitioned from uh, CFO to the COO CFO role. And at that time, I had the one of the great experiences of my life has been working with a gentleman named Mike Hastings who is still a very close personal friend who had led Sweetheart Cup and, and just one of the legends of food service packaging. To this day, we, we still call him the godfather of green. He was a board member when I joined. As I mentioned, the CEO at the time left shortly after I joined and there was some discussion around who should lead the business. Just incredibly fortunate that, that Hastings, Mike Hastings decided to step into that role. Again, not a week goes by that I don't talk to him. Again, just a, a great advisor and a close friend. So to that end, the title of COO, CFO was really just reflective of the fact that, you know, Mike didn't live in Boulder and he and I were on the phone every day. It was after Luke Vernon left the business, it was pretty clear that I was effectively handling everything but the final say on, on most decisions. And at, at that point in time, we were, well, we were owned by Waddington at that point in time. 
Uh, and again, it's one of those interesting oddities of, you know, what is a CEO if it's owned by another company, whether it has a, a CEO. Um, so again, some of that's just evolution of title. But yeah, from a stress perspective, leadership's hard. There was a podcast I was listening to recently, uh, How I Built This, with the, the CEO of Google, who was you know, making the point that at the end of the day, the decisions, they can be right or they can be wrong. What the organization needs is an answer. And being able to be reasoned and be clear in how you make your decisions are what's the most important. I'm very fortunate to have been in this role now for 12 years um, in an industry that I knew nothing about when I joined and have very quickly learned kind of the ins and outs. And again, it's a hard business. Food service distribution is a huge industry with a relatively limited number of players at scale and how we all compete, how we, again, that competition exists at all levels. We are competing at the operator level to make decisions. We're competing at the distributor level. We are competing um, at the supply chain level. And it is, I have the advantage now of having done it for long enough that I can feel a little bit more confident in some of those choices. Uh, I just feel very fortunate to have been with the company as long as I have. And six transitions in between. That's quite amazing. <laughs> you know, six ownership transitions. You've just stayed a constant. You're a constant. And, you know, typically when ownership shifts, sometimes the leadership shifts. I would tell you that the constant has been the brand and the constant has been the mission. And I think that really, the, I, was, I was joking when you first said it, the first transition is the hardest. I repeat it all the time when I have either friends or, or, or folks that I know that are going through a sale of the business is that culturally there is a phase of mourning that you have to go through because it, the old way is gone and the new way has begun. And the question is, what really has changed? And the risk in that transition is that you focus on what's different. Okay, my reporting format's changed. Okay, my payroll provider's changed. If it's, you know, accounting systems will change. Accounting standards will change. HR policies will change. The advantage that we've had through each of these is that the focus, the mission of Eco Products has remained intact. And that has a lot to do with um, Mike Evans, who was the CEO at the time of, of the Wagner Group, another phenomenal leader in the history of food service packaging, who was incredibly mindful of the fact that we had developed a brand and that brands in food service packaging are rare. And it was one of his guiding principles through the integration exercise that the brand needed to remain independent. And that is very unusual in food service packaging M&A. And so with that, the brand's not the logo, right? The brand is the ethos. The brand is the commitment to the mission. And that mission has guided us to this day. And so when we talk about, yes, there's been six changes of ownership, and I've been there through all of them, but it has less to do with me and more about the fact that we've got a phenomenal team here. And again, I'm 12 years in tenure, my leadership team's got folks with 15 years, right? I'm, I'm the new guy for you know, some of the, the, the core who have stayed with this company. And I don't wanna to be too overly self-deprecating, right? I mean, clearly um, I'm a leader of the company, but what matters is the mission and the fact that we do what we do because we care. And I think we've been successful because so many in this team are passionate around zero waste. That's amazing. And it's such a certificate to the 
organization that, you know, yes, people believe in it and people want to uh, stay with it. So one of the other sort of inflection points that I found was around 2007 when you created a Green Stripe Cup. So, so you know, that transition from distribution to creation and this uh, Green Stripe Cup, what was it and how did it change the company? Well, the Green Stripe was a an early choice in terms of how to mark the, the product, uh, no different from the, the World Art Hot Cup. The decision to brand the cup was the key and to brand everything we made. And that became part of the critical piece of our success is that, you know, if it was going to be the tiniest spot on that cutlery, we were going to find a way to get our logo on there and make it clear through the design choices that this was an eco products product. And I think one of the things that from a product development standpoint, we're extremely proud of is that you can see our stuff through the choices that we make aesthetically as a signal to the fact that there's other choices that we're making in terms of how it's made, what it's made from, and how it's intended to perform that guide ourselves in, in every step. So the track record of innovation absolutely you know, began with building out a suite of products under the brand of Eco Products. But the track record of innovation continued beyond there, right? And it wasn't just what we can make. It wasn't just from a substrate perspective. Again, making uh, out of corn was the original, the original big idea. But very quickly recognizing that this is compostable and could be further certified as compostable through you know, BPI and, and others was a critical part of that. But when I think about innovation, it is the core of what we do. And it was an innovative approach to the products, but it's been also been an innovative approach to the industry in terms of how we would use marketing techniques from consumer products to a food service package, which historically was sold as a commodity, right? There was a bit of innovation there, but the innovation we're most proud of is at the operator level, that focus on front of house waste diversion. And the, the most recent evolution of that concept is what we call our product and zero waste specialists, which you'll find many references to our PZWs. And we have folks in all corners of the country whose sole job is to connect composters, haulers, and operators that are looking to divert waste from landfill and do the work to make sure that the products that are brought into that venue match what they need, that we've got as close to 100% of what's provided to the guests will be compostable, and that we then have a hauler and a composter that are willing to take that, that stream. Having those resources in markets dedicated to the relationships that are required to get that level of trust is, a, I view, a critical innovation in the history of eco products and, and really a core differentiator for us in terms of how we, we create these success stories in the field. Do you want to learn more about the end of life solutions and regenerative packaging products? Follow at Good Garbage Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And tune into our Trivia Tuesdays. Now, let's get back to the conversation. So this is very interesting because um, I have a habit and I presume, you know, you might have the same habit. I tend to look at the trash cans when I go to a restaurant because when you look at it, you can have, you know, a lot of compostable products, but there'll be that odd plastic lined cup 
or it'll be some little, you know, something which I know it's not going to go into the same waste. And then, of course, somebody is taking it. So the restaurant is feeling good that it's taking all compostable products, but is it really getting composted? And that's where you've made a difference. I want to know how that sale was to the restaurants. How cooperative were they? Did you find composters everywhere? Was that a challenge? Did you have to motivate people to get into the business? Traditionally, food service packaging, I'd say the most of the food service distribution favors a commodity approach. The bigger the distributor, the more they want to have something that's completely generic. So if they want to change the provider of the chicken breast, they can do that with limited disruption in the marketplace. You know, the vast majority of PET cups that are sold today are clear, blank, not printed. And that is one of the major concerns is that that the same thing is true for polystyrene cups. The same thing is true for polypropylene cups. So now I've got three 16-ounce truncated cones that could be made of any different material. That lack of predictability is a critical challenge from, from a waste aversion perspective. Because if, if we, as professionals, if you and I picking up molded fiber to say, what's that made of, who made it, we spend all day thinking about this. Your average customer just wants it out of their hands when they're done with it. And so that lack of predictability is one of the critical headwinds for end of life. And again, one of the reasons that PET bottles are so successfully recycled is because they are almost always made of PET. A threaded neck clear bottle can be relied upon to be made of PET. Once you get into food service packaging, that predictability goes out the window. And so that was critical from our perspective, not just from a branding perspective, but the role that proper labeling has on the successful diversion at the end of life is critical. And I won't say that that's where we began when we decided to print our name on a cup, Uh, but we very quickly got there because if we weren't printing clear messaging around that product's attributes, there was no hope, right? It was going to be a contaminant from the moment it was sold because worst case, you know, again, a PLA cup going out blank into the world, a composter is gonna think it's PET and a recycler is gonna, maybe be upset later if it winds up contaminating a stream. So with that, the decision to brand consistently became a a critical piece because of its ability to send a message. And I think that ties in a couple important respects. From the operator's perspective, it is a billboard that is allowing them to communicate, I care, I've made choices, I am choosing not to provide you with reusable serviceware. There's an implied choice there that said, I chose not to offer you know, glass. That said, due to a variety of operating parameters, I've, I've chosen that. Now I'm gonna make the next best choice I can. Because again, we know there's cheaper solutions out there. Anybody could use an EPS foam product and it would cost a fraction of what the rest does. But choosing EPS foam sends a message as well. So there's a couple important questions there and I wanna make sure I get to both of them. Uh, but that, that branding piece was critical because of our ability to then get the operator to see the advantage of making a, making a statement to their customer. But from that point forward, and this is an important point I want to make, one of the challenges that packaging and I would say operators have is that when we choose packaging, 
we are beset upon with trade-offs. How can we get the best possible protection of the product? How do we preserve shelf life? Does it look good? Does it merchandise well? All of these beginning of life factors from a branding perspective that then translate into we are now considering end of life. We are asking questions around, well, what happens after its use? And the challenge that I see today is that whether it's an operator or a manufacturer, we tend to refer to end-of-life options as attributes. This is compostable. This is recyclable. To an extent, they are attributes. But they are only possible if they have behaviors and infrastructure that will support them. And I think that's the top challenge today is that so much of the time that we spend, even from a legislative perspective, right, when we watch some of the bills that are moving through making declarations, this must be recyclable or compostable by X date. Okay, that's great. That is now motivated in industry. It's a call to action. It's got rates. It's got dates. We are motivated. But we're motivated against a claim. But yet what we have to do is change behavior. And from that perspective, we run the potential of missing the real call to action. And so when going back to your initial question, has it been hard? Is there infrastructure? The answer is absolutely yes. We still encounter people that are shocked. What you, that's compostable? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> what's that, you know, what's compost mean? Is that biodegradable? Is that the same thing? Right, I mean, we, we have challenges in our market that a lot of words are used interchangeably and the information is not consistently shared. And so what will be commonplace in Seattle and now commonplace in Minneapolis will be relatively new, even in parts of Colorado. So this is that, that inconsistency of knowledge, that inconsistency of infrastructure are challenges that we will never take for granted, right? Because the reality is there is composting infrastructure in all 50 states. It's just devoted to yard waste, right? We keep Christmas trees out of the landfill, right? We, that, that, that's a good discipline that's been instituted many, many, many years ago. Um, but that yard waste compost facility is not permitted, nor does it expect to take food waste or, and or packaging. And so from our perspective, that's where the work is. And this is what we call our system solution. And the belief is if you can control what goes into a venue, you should be able to control what goes out. And so our definition of a zero waste venue is a place where 80% or more of the waste that leaves that venue either goes to recycling or composting 80% recycling or composting, 20% trash or less. That will constitute quote unquote zero waste in our, in our model. That requires procurement, right? A commitment to buy the right things. It requires operating commitment and it requires infrastructure, uh, both a hauler as well as a composter that's willing to take that, that product. We can play a, a role in all four of those verticals. And again, that's, that's the mission and that's the work. It's easier in some markets. It's harder in others. I would say one of the things that we are most proud of is the fact that it's not just something that's rumored to occur in limited ways in the coast. We can demonstrate success stories from Italy to Edinburgh to Minneapolis to Chicago, places that were not normally associated with you know, the San Fran, Seattle compost belief. This is something, it's a biological process. It's something we can demonstrate in all markets. It's not regulated. It's something that a microbial population can be relied upon to do if certain parameters are met. How difficult was it to convince a brand to have your brand on a product? 
have you been able to push the idea that in a way you're benefiting them by your transparency and everything else that comes along? How difficult has that conversation been? Well, the, the answer is, unfortunately, it depends. <laughs> uh, when we're at our best is when the brand owner comes to us to say, I want that logo because that speaks to where our environmental bona fides, right? That we are lending the credibility of our brand to theirs. And we have great examples of that. There are other examples where you know, some of the largest uh, controlled uh, food service environments in the country are loath to allow other brands into their four walls. And depending on the conversation, the use of our brand can become more subtle. <laughs> but ultimately, it comes down to making sure that if the goal is to get this product to a composter, it needs to be recognized by the composter, by the hauler, and ideally by the consumer to know that they've put the right product in the right bin. Our brand plays a role in that. Which isn't to say that we won't be called in to work with partners that have no interest in waste diversion. They just think that the beginning of life benefits of what we've done are compelling. They believe that uh, renewable resources is critical and they want to start there. Because again, not everyone is going to commit to the work it takes to create a clean front of house composting stream. And we are partners in many of those markets and with many of those customers. But we do think our brand plays a role. And I think clearly the BPI certification is part of that as well, right? So we will urge BPI certification to make sure they're properly uh, marked according to their standards. And again, our brand plays a role in, in the use of that, that uh, BPI sublicense. It's definitely impressive that you have, you've not compromised on that value that, you know, our brand is there because I presume there will be situations where the brand that you're selling to they say, okay, then we're not going to take it. And that's that's the tough part in business. You know, do yeah. you actually walk away from that big conglomerate? Deal? Well, I won't say we walk away. I say we try to find <laughs> solutions that work. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. So yeah. you go this extra mile with transparency. And it's clear across your websites, including Novalex and your website, that you want to make sure that you respect the consumer and their intelligence and you respect the idea that they must know where the product came from. And you also said that even if you're importing it, it's clear. There is nothing to hide. This is where it comes from. And so tell me more about that idea, how it germinated and how it's taken such a strong hold on your brand and the way you do things. That's a great question. I'm glad to hear you say you come away with that impression. And again, it's not just eco products, very much a Novalex commitment to sustainability. And we're, we're proud to be part of Novalex as they're on their, their journey. Um, again, of all of the ownership we've had, we've, we've seemed to have found our forever home, um, which is an exciting thing to be able to say. So within that, transparency, again, I will take it back to the eco products perspective, which is we were the first to have a sustainability report uh, in the food service packaging category. Um, and again, a part of that was the brand called for it. A lot of very passionate people here in our building looking at other peer brands and saying, we need to do what they did. And I would say in many respects, we look to Patagonia as our, 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 our true north 
and their cleanest line communication has provided inspiration to us. Our B Corp certification was inspired by them. And again, our ability to just speak in clear terms around where we are, where we aspire to go, and how we hold ourselves accountable. Many of that just becomes best practices from a sustainability report standpoint. So uh, very early on, we created an independent sustainability advisory council, which was a, a critical part of our evolution to our journey to make sure that it wasn't just about coming up with a, a compelling marketing piece. It was about making sure that we were holding ourselves to account to best practices. And that's a discipline that continues to this day. And we're, we're very proud that we continue to have our own eco-product sustainability report that nests within the broader Novalex sustainability report. I think it's critical when we talk about sustainability to have a public-facing set of goals and way you're going to measure yourself to those goals. Again, it's the adage, you can't manage what you don't measure. And I think clearly with, you know, Novalex has set its, its goals from a you know, carbon disclosure perspective in terms of, you know, some of the, the financing, uh, which we are extremely proud of. And I would say within our own sphere of influence, what we can control and how we'll measure ourselves against it has been a guiding principle for eco-products. It's really inspirational, and I, I love that you use Patagonia as a North Star and guiding force, and they're just amazing. And so I want to know more about Novalex. You know, you said this is sure. this is ideally a marriage for life, and you know, this you found home. So it'll be great to hear more about them and where they come from, and where are they going? You know, those sure. those three pieces. Sure, Novalex is a name you may not be familiar with in that it's formed through acquisition, through a, a series of investments beginning um, with Hylex Poly followed by Durobag. Novalex was the, the blending of the, the Hylex business and the Duro paper bag business, recognizing that these were two significant companies that needed a new name to go forward and Novalex was born. The acquisitions that followed with Packaging Dynamics, bringing in Bagcraft, obviously Heritage, which is one of the largest you know, can liner manufacturers, as well as uh, Waddington and then Vegware and other acquisitions that have followed, has created Novalex, which, you know, to your point, is globally one of the, the leaders from a uh, total packaging offering, uh, certainly one of the largest that's out there. And what I think is remarkable about Novalex goes back to the fact of how it was built via acquisition, avoided some of those traps that I mentioned earlier to say, we are gonna be one brand, we'll be one sales organization. We already have a rep in that market. They're gonna sell both books. Because I think it became clear very early on that the expertise it took to sell a retail shopping bag was gonna be different from what it took to sell a paper bag. And the respecting different brands, different sales execution, that's been a constant through each of the acquisitions that have come together. So we are one Novalex, there's no doubt. But within the segments to which we are all leaders, the individual brands will be, will be better, better known. So with that, it's a commitment to innovation, choice, and sustainability, right? Those are the three tenets of Novalex. And given the relationships that Novalex enjoys with some of the largest, whether we call it restaurant accounts, uh, retailers of all shapes and sizes, the ability of Novalex to make change at scale, to me, is, is breathtaking. Particularly when we start to think about you know, some of the opportunities. It's the largest PE film uh, recycling operation. You know, one of the largest is, is owned and operated by Novalex, right? So that, that commitment to post-consumer recycle, the commitment to compostable packaging, 
obviously not just eco products definitely put a spotlight on the compostable side of the business. But in many respects, we joke about this, the humble paper bag, I look at that as being, in many respects, the most sustainable package. You'll get that from, from a retailer and you'll look at the bottom and it's, it's, uh, it can be up to 100% post-consumer recycled content. It is widely recyclable. It is also compostable. It is certified in each of those respects. And man, hard for any food service package to make that claim. And it's ubiquitous and yet not normally remarked upon unless you're coming to it you know from our perspective to say very few things in this in in the United States that you can hand to a consumer and feel confident that there's a variety of options that will keep that thing out of the landfill and you know the paper bag is one so again Novalex is just a, a phenomenal company in terms of how it's come together and how it's grown I'm so happy as a paper maker to hear that. <laughs> so, 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 you know, that's my route. Paper for bags is what we created for the longest time. And we did it all from Bagasse, so we still do. So just thinking about Novalex a little more, and it's clearly a huge organization and still privately held. So two things from there. How much independence does eco products have within that group? And I presume there's a lot of codependence in a way, and that probably adds a lot of value because, you know, you're yeah. learning from each other. And how does that work in terms of business? And of course, uh, my other question is, you know, where is it going? Great questions, all of them. Let me start with where we're going, because I think that that really speaks to the strength of Novalex. It's not just a variety of products. It's a variety of manufacturing disciplines, which does a couple things. One very good at operating at scale, and yet not so wed to one or more substrates that when we come along to say, hey, have you considered self-manufacture of this product category, that it's a non-starter. So from our perspective, eco products and our growth has always been building towards how do we manufacture more of what we sell? And again, I'll go back to one of the original pieces that, you know, the curse of food service packaging is it wants to be as close to free as possible. How do you get there? You operate at scale. You operate highly efficient machines that run long runs, right? The perfect manufacturing machine is the one you only shut down for preventative maintenance. That requires scale. And I think what we have developed over the years at Eco Products is that level of scale. One of the challenges we face is it's across multiple substrates that are multiple manufacturing verticals where hard to imagine one four-walled building that would make 100% of the things that we sell, much less 100% of everything we sell in terms of SKUs, but just the variety of manufacturing disciplines. So where we are most excited is that potential to leverage Novalex's manufacturing expertise apply that into more of the categories that we've been leading in with an import model to get to the point where we can operate those at scale. A great example was you would have seen announcements of uh, the PLA cup line that's now running in Chattanooga, which is Novalex thermoforming operation. State-of-the-art machine, putting out beautiful cups. Again, we would not be where we are without the partners that we've developed over many, many years in all parts of the world. But again, the future, I believe we will see continued adoption in our category. Uh, I believe that that's a combination of brand owner commitment. It's a combination of consumer awareness of the impacts of single-use packaging and also legislation. 
And I think those three things are combining now at a pace um, that's really accelerating. And I think when we look out at the landscape of legislation that's been passed, you know, whether it's outright bans or extended producer responsibility structures, which are now rolling out, I believe will favor our category, you know, whether that's post-consumer recycled content, which we offer, or whether it's compostable content. I think we've got the attention that we need to say status quo got us here, but the status quo needs some very important fixes, right? A take-make-waste model has reached a logical conclusion that is making many people uncomfortable. Right. There's only so much room in the landfills. Uh, a certain percentage of what's manufactured will escape into the environment. And when and if it happens, those become persistent reminders of the fact that we need to do things differently. So I think consumer perception is there. I think the landscape is there. So with that growth, as part of Novalex, right, our goal is to be not just the leading brand in this category, but really the leading manufacturer in terms of uh, synergy and independence. How, how does that work? And Yeah, well, the independence, again, comes down to there is an understanding that we have a brand that speaks very clearly to an audience that wants to hear about what we're doing, wants to understand what we're doing, believe in what we're doing. And brands are hard to build. And I think there's a recognition that that brand is reflective of a team. It's reflective of a mission, and that has been uh, respected. So when we say, are we independent, it is true to an extent, but we are part of Novalex, right? So at the end of every month, our results matter just as much as everybody else's. And delivering on our commitments, doing what we say we're going to do, making our goals matters. And I think it's reflected by our sustainability report. Right? It nests within Novalex. Uh, it is independent and reflective of our operations. We are part of the whole, understood that there are commitments that we'll make um, that are, are central to our brand that may not be reflected by all Novalex divisions, but in aggregate support innovation, choice, and sustainability. I think that's that was some of my greatest sigh of relief was seeing those three pillars as the tenement, as the, you know, the core of Novalex and saying we are reflected in that. We stand for innovation, choice, and sustainability 100%. And so while we may speak to it in different ways, our product offering may be uh, slightly different, we are definitely part of the whole. So, so, so I know that you work with uh, such a variety of suppliers. And from personal experience, I know how particular you are about who supplies to you and how much due diligence you guys do. So I want to know more of building of the supply chain and how you ensure quantity, consistency, quality. <laughs> well, this is what my case things used to describe as the ballet act. It's incredibly complicated. It's not an easy thing to make light of and it's it's core to our success it's a dedication it's a lot of years of managing a lot of very important relationships in frankly a growing list of countries so part of that is just the discipline of doing what we do moments like the acquisition and partnership with vegware are incredibly valuable moments where we see how another leading brand has approached a similar set of market-facing challenges and, and, and supply challenges and uh, it's one of the things i'm most excited about is how we continue to get better but there's no easy way to summarize the amount of discipline that goes in other than to say 
we're managing flows, right? We've got strong relationships. We've got strong competition across all of our categories so that we know that we've got redundancy and we are doing the time to do the evaluation, as you referenced, continual audit and inspection and reporting and trust and verify, right? These are all critical pieces of our, of our supply chain. And the fact that we, in turn, will then hold ourselves to third-party audit, whether that's through you know, third-party testing services, whether that's you know, third-party inspection services, whether that's through our own B Corp assessment, is that you learn very early on you got to stay on top of all elements of this. It's not good enough to check it early and forget it. It has to be continuous. And I'd say that discipline gets further checked annually through our sustainability report. So the, the process is definitely one of checks and balances. And it is, it is one that unfortunately is hard for me to summarize for you. I can clearly see the financial brain there of the rigor and checks and balances. <laughs> In terms of, again, staying with the supply chain, I know that the geopolitical issues must be affecting you. And how do you ensure that you balance that? Because there's not that much available capacity apart from China, for example. So how do you manage to you know, bridge that gap? There are things we can't control in all elements of life, much less business. Uh, and I would say in our business in particular, what a fascinating study the last two years of the pandemic have been where oftentimes we would struggle because there was unique factors of our supply chain that impacted only importers, right? I'll go back to the West Coast port strike from whatever, four years ago, where suddenly we were disappointing the market. And again, food service distribution is expecting 98% fill rates. If you let them down, you have a problem. Uh, and the only way to not let them down is make sure you've got a steady flow of inventory and a disciplined supply chain that's operating at scale. So there's been hard times in our history where we had unique challenges, which is why the last two years have been fascinating because there were absolutely challenges, right? Ocean freight capacity, 1A, right? Everybody has seen the lineup of, of ships at the port. Clearly, the tensions between United States and China from a trade perspective not the least of which being you know, zero COVID policies in China and the impacts that those have had. So yes, diversification is key. But the reason I bring it up is because while we were struggling, so were U.S. manufacturers, right? Lack of availability of labor, COVID was shutting down plants here at the same time, right? There was no easy days no matter what you were doing. And I think it just comes down to, frankly, the team, which is really the answer I should have given you before to say, how do you do the supply chain? The answer is we've got a team of people you know, led by many 15-year veterans. It's a calm hand at the helm. And they say rough waters make for good sailors, uh, I can attest. And I would tell you that, yes, diversification is the key, right? Again, and I would say that how we look at diversification, both through import and self-manufacture. I don't envision a future in which 100% of what we sell is what we make. I think we are going to continue to be too innovative. We're going to continue to try to do new things. We're going to continue to re rely on our partners. Just A, because of the nature of the scale, right? The growth of what we've seen and will continue to see is hard for us to think, well, we'll just buy all of those machines, no, we need many people buying machines that are willing to supply us and, and we'll figure out the best path to get those to market. What an amazing conversation this has been, Ian. I'm going to take you to my last question. What is your definition of good garbage? And I, the, the, the one question I knew was coming. 
because <laughs> uh, I am a fan of your podcast and it's it's been good to hear some of the past guests. And um, Thank you. That's very kind. I would say I would modify that question a bit to say the only good garbage is considered garbage, because from my perspective, so much of, of where we have been has been focused on the use and not focused on the end of life where the concept that what was made would go away when we were done with it, right? Uh, you know, Fonda Gary Hirschberg, who was pounding the table, there is no away. <laughs> away is a place, and we need to be mindful of these things, and I couldn't agree with that statement more. And where I get excited about where the category is going is that we are now at a point where it is now an expectation certainly at the CPG level, definitely at the food service level to say, if we are going to introduce this package, there should be some thought given not only to what it's made of, but what that end of life will be. And so we know that not 100% of what will be brought into the marketplace will be recyclable or compostable. And that's a hard fact. Because again, we're, we're shooting for zero waste. But the reality is there are certain applications if something was touching something toxic, if something was touching something, you know, heaven forbid, radioactive, right, you don't want that in the recycling stream. You certainly don't want it in the compost stream. So there are going to be instances where the landfill is the best solution. And what I would consider good garbage has been considered. It's how it was used. If there is no appropriate end of life solution for it, then I'd say that's good garbage. That, that's going where it should go because it's there for a reason. Wonderful. Thank you for that perspective. And thank you for being you, Ian. You're such an inspiration and we need leaders like you. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on this podcast. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I look forward to hearing the, the stories of, of some of the other great names we know in this category. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Good Garbage Podcast. Please leave us a review and let us know who you want to hear from in the future. I'm your host, Ved Krishna. See you next time.